This morning, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. This morning, our focus is on verses 10 through 13, but it's been a few weeks since we've been in Romans chapter 9. I was away on vacation, and then uh, we had Father's Day last week. And so, uh, and the problem with that is we kind of interrupted Paul's thought right in the middle of a paragraph. And so, I kind of wanted to go back and, and get a running start on where our focus is going to be this morning. And the crucial issue that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9 is, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Can God be counted faithful? Can God's word be, be stood upon as our foundation? When Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that if God is for us, who can be against us? Can we trust that promise? When Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not death, nor life, nor angels, or demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, can we trust that promise? That's the issue in Romans 9. But specifically with regard to God's chosen people, the Israelites. God had chosen the Israelites to be His special possession in all the earth. And as Paul says in the beginning of Romans 9, theirs is the adoption and the covenants and the blessings and all of these privileges. So God chose the Israelites. They are His chosen people. He has blessed them in so many ways. But now the question is, is that promise going to fail because the Israelites, by and large, are not coming to faith in Jesus, their Messiah and Savior? That's what Paul is grieving about in verses 1 through 5. He's grieving for his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, and he's grieving over the fact that they, by and large, obviously exceptions, Paul is one of them, there were many Jews who did believe in Jesus, the Messiah, as their Savior. But by and large, the majority of the Israelites were opposed to Jesus and did not believe that he was their Messiah or their Savior. And according to Paul's gospel, if those Israelites do not believe in Jesus as their Messiah, they will not be saved which raises a crucial theological problem. If the Israelites, or at least some of the Israelites, will not be saved because they have not placed their faith in Jesus the Messiah, then has God's promise to them failed? Has God's covenant with them failed? Has His word failed? That's the issue. And so Paul is not only... He not only has a personal grief over the unbelief of his fellow Israelites, he is also wrestling with a very serious theological issue, and that is the faithfulness of the Word of God. And so he says in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Of course, Paul knows that can't happen, right? He cannot substitute himself for his Israelite people. There's already been a substitute. Jesus is the substitute. But he's, he's expressing his heart here. He's expressing his concern for them. If it were possible, I could wish myself were accursed for the sake of my people. But he obviously knows that can't happen. And it wouldn't be sufficient anyway. Because Christ is the one who was cursed already for his people. So I wish I could be accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel... And now he lists all their benefits and their past relationship with God. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, Jesus, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So many, many Israelites are not believing, but... They've been blessed by God, and they've been chosen by God. They're his people. They have the covenants, the law, the promises, the patriarchs, the Messiah. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to God's word? Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to your holy word today, and we desire to know it. We desire to understand it. We desire to, as much as is humanly possible, comprehend the marvelous truths that your word is communicating to us today. There are things here that are difficult for us to understand. There are things here that are difficult for us to accept. There are things here that are beyond our comprehension. But Lord, I pray that you would give us faith. I pray that you would give us trust today to completely rely on your word and to accept your word as it is and to understand it and apply it to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that it would lead us to a greater love for you, greater thankfulness for what you have done, that it would lead to a greater praise and worship from us, that it would lead to your greater exaltation and the magnification of your name. Lord, bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I remember when I first started out preaching, the very first sermon I ever preached in my life, I was 16 years old, and I was wondering, how in the world am I going to get 10 minutes out of this passage? That's how beginning preachers feel. They're like, there's no way I can talk for 10 minutes. Well, now I feel like the opposite problem. I feel like, how am I going to preach a four-hour message in 30, 35 minutes? And it's not possible, right? So we'll, we'll do what we can do uh, this morning. And if need be, then we'll put a to-be-continued on it at, at the end. But there's just so much here that you feel like you can't really do it justice in one sermon. But we'll see what we can accomplish this morning by God's grace. The thesis, if you will, of Paul's argument, beginning in verse 6, is stated very clearly. And the thesis is this, God's word has not failed. So if you're looking, like if you're, if you're a grammar teacher or English teacher and you were looking for the thesis statement of his research paper, there it is right there. God's word has not failed. That's what he's seeking to show. That's what he's seeking to prove. Now, what follows it then is the evidence, the arguments that support that main assertion. So the Israelites are not believing. Why are they not believing? And what does that do then to the promise of God? Is God's word at fault? And his assertion is clear. God's word is not at fault. God's promise is not at fault. So his word is not unfaithful. His promise is not unfaithful. What he has determined to do and what he has said has not failed. Here's why. And my outline is somewhat simplistic, but I hope it will communicate much of what Paul is saying here. Here's the reason why God's word has not failed. Because it's Israel, not Israel. What does he mean by that? Paul, are, are you just engaging in doublespeak here? What, what are you trying to say? How can Israel not be Israel? And what he's doing here is he's making a very fine distinction that he wants us to see. And that distinction is the physical versus the spiritual. Physical versus spiritual. On the physical side of things, there were, there were many, many who could claim to be descendants of Abraham, right? Any physical child, any ethnic descendant, any, any ancestral heir of Abraham could claim to be a part of Israel, physically speaking. But what Paul is doing is he is saying, there's that, there's a physical Israel, there's an ethnic Israel, there's, a, uh, there's a, an ancestral Israel, a national Israel. But there is something within that that God has been doing from the very beginning, and that is a spiritual people within that larger Israel. So in other words, there is an Israel within and Israel. If we were drawing concentric circles here, we would say, we would put a big circle on the outside and say this is all of humanity. Every person who has ever lived. Then we would draw a smaller circle and we would say this is Israel in the sense of those who have descended from Abraham. 
And then, based on what Paul is saying here, we would draw a smaller circle inside that and say that within that physical ethnic Israel, there is a true spiritual people that will inherit eternal life. So there's an Israel within an Israel. And he then has some sub-points to that, some evidence to support that claim, that there's an Israel within an Israel. And what is that? First of all, it has to do with promise, not parents. So the first point is, it's Israel, not Israel. The second point is, that's because it's promise, not parents. So what determines if you're a part of true Israel then? What determines if you're a part of the people of God that God has not failed? The people to whom all of God's promises are sure and secure forever and ever. What determines that? Is it your, your descent from parents or is it something else? And what Paul says in this passage very clearly is, it's not descent from parents, it is the promise of God. So he uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael, children of Abraham. He says in verse 7, Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Very clear here, Paul is distinguishing between two terms. One is descendant, and the other is a child. Descendant and child. Descendant has to do with the physical. Child has to do with the spiritual and the promise. So not all of the descendants of Abraham are his children. On the contrary, and he quotes from the Old Testament, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He says, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So it's the promise of God. It's not just who your parents are. So for the Israelites in Paul's day, and even in Jesus' day, you can see this to some degree in the Gospels, that there seemed to be an assumption among the Jews that just because they were Israelites, they were secure in God's salvation. And part of what Paul's doing in Romans is undercutting that assumption. So in, in many of the opening chapters of Romans we've already been through, Paul says, no, it's not just because you have the law. It's not just because you can claim Abraham as your father. It's not just because you have circumcision. It's not because you claim to do the works of the law. And so he undercuts all of those things and he says, no, it's by grace through faith that we're saved. So Paul has been saying through the whole letter, it's not about ancestry. It's about God's grace. And Jesus confronted this same assumption of the Israelites when he interacted with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had this assumption that they were good. They were secure in God's covenant. They were secure as God's covenant people. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. Just imagine that falling on the ears of some of the most religious people in Israelite society who believed they were God's chosen ones and they were the elite of God's chosen ones. And Jesus says to them, you're of your father, the devil. 
So this assumption that just because you can claim Abraham as your parent, that makes you good to go. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. It's the promise of God, not who your parents are. Then he moves on, and and, and really at the end of this discussion of Isaac and Ishmael, he makes clear that it's God's power, not human plans. It's God's power, not human plans. Because what's the key thing going on with Isaac and Ishmael? You remember the story, right? God promised Abraham a son. He said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. You're going to be the father of many peoples. But here's the problem. Abraham didn't have a son, did he? Abraham didn't have a son. So where is that son going to come from? Abraham waited and waited and waited. And God kept telling him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a family. He waited and he waited until finally he became impatient. And Sarah had this suggestion. Why don't you just take my servant? Why don't you just take my handmaid, Hagar, and have a son through her? That, that's human plans, right? So that's human plans. That's, that's human ingenuity. That's, that's let's try to figure out this problem on our own using human wisdom. But what did God say to Abraham even after Ishmael was born? Abraham was trying to claim Ishmael as his heir. And Abraham was saying, God, just use Ishmael. Here, I have a son. Just use him as the one through whom you will accomplish your purposes. And God says, no, Isaac, Sarah will have a son. Sarah will have a son. What is that? That's God's power. Because Sarah was 90 years old. Sarah had been childless her entire life. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for her to have a child. What is God communicating to Abraham through this? And, and what is, what's Paul's purpose in using this story except to show that salvation comes by the power of God, not by human plans? It's by promise, not parents. And even more than that, it's by God's power, not human plans. So Paul uses Isaac and Ishmael as an example of the fact that there is an Israel within an Israel. And and it's very clear. He says, here are two descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. But one's chosen and one's not. So immediately, right off the bat, here we have distinctions being made within the descendants of Abraham, right? That's, That's used to support his contention that not all who are Israel are Israel. From the very beginning, there were distinctions within Israel. So that's one example, Isaac and Ishmael. But then he turns to another example. He moves forward in the biblical story, and he moves on to uh, the next generation. In verse 10, he says, Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. Now, you might say, Paul, I think we got the point with Isaac and Ishmael. Why, Why are you using another example? Well, Paul is doing here what any good writer, a good debater, a good teacher would do is he is anticipating potential objections, right, to his argument. And you can imagine a potential uh, objection to what Paul is saying with regarding Isaac and Ishmael. And the Jewish objection might go something like this. Well, obviously he chose Isaac over Ishmael because Ishmael is the son of a pagan slave, 
And Isaac was the son of one of the, the, the family line, you know, one of within the family, Abraham and Sarah. So clearly, if God's going to make a choice, he's going to make the choice of Isaac because Ishmael is tainted because of his birth from Hagar, his mother. And, and not only that, maybe an Israelite might also say uh, in objection to Paul, yeah, well, God had some time there to see the character of Ishmael before Isaac was even born. And so Ishmael grows up, he's an adolescent by the time that Isaac is born, and God says, no way, I'm choosing him, I'm choosing Isaac. These are potential objections. And so Paul brings in another example from the Old Testament to show that none of those things are a part of the consideration. So he uses Rebekah. So Rebecca, you can't say that she was a slave woman, right? She's not a pagan slave woman. Rebecca was chosen from the, within the family. In fact, that's what, that's what Abraham desired. Before he died, he made his servant promise, go back to my family and find a wife for Isaac. So Rebecca is one who is approved within the family to be a part of this family line. So there's no problem with the mother. And with Isaac and Ishmael, there were two different mothers. But with Jacob and Esau, there is one mother. Same mother. Same father, same mother. What's the point that Paul's making here with regard to Jacob and Esau? The point that he's making is it's grace, not worthiness. It's grace, not worthiness. What's the worthiness that Paul is putting in X through? Well, there are several of them. So some might say, well, it's the worthiness of having both parents a part of God's people, Isaac and Rebekah. But it's clear why he didn't choose Ishmael, because Hagar was from the outside. She was a pagan. She was a slave. So, but Paul is saying, no, there's a distinction between Jacob and Esau. There is a distinction being made there. One was chosen, one was not. Well, what was the basis for that choice? It was not on the basis of parents, right? Some might say, well, the choice of Isaac over Ishmael was because of a different mother. You can't make that choice. You can't make that a criteria with regard to Jacob and Esau. So it's not the worthiness of having both parents a part of God's people. It's not the worthiness of being the oldest. So he says, here you have two people. They were twins. And he he uses this as an example to show that both of these men came from essentially the very same exact circumstances. Same father, same mother. In fact, born at the same time. They were twins in the womb together in Rebecca's womb. But then when they're born, there is one who is born first, right? Even among twins, you have a firstborn. And so who was the firstborn? Esau was the firstborn, right? And so if we were to be operating according to normal human cultural traditions or human expectations, who would be the chosen one within Isaac's family? Esau would. In the ancient world, the firstborn received a lion's share of the inheritance. They received the fatherly blessing, the firstborn blessing. And so... Generally speaking, the expected result would be that Esau would be the chosen one. 
But what does God do? God works contrary to normal human expectations of worthiness. Normal expectation of worthiness would be the older over the younger, but God says the opposite. It's the younger over the older. So it's not the worthiness of being the oldest. Paul adds in this passage that it's not the worthiness of good works. It's not the worthiness of good works. And so you can't even point to their character and say, it's because of who they were that God chose one over the other. It's because of their works or because of their character. And Paul makes very clear, no, they hadn't even been born yet. They hadn't even been born. They didn't even have a chance to do any good or any evil. They've done nothing yet. And yet God said to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. God made his choice before they were even born, before they had done anything good or bad, meaning that the choice is not based on their works or their character. But, but what, about, what about future works? Sure, Paul, they, they had not been born yet. And so, yes, in actual experience, Esau and Isaac hadn't done anything yet because, or Esau and Jacob hadn't done anything yet because they weren't born yet. But God's all-knowing, right? So he looks and he sees that, that Jacob is going to have a better character than Esau and chooses Jacob because he foresees what is going to happen down the road. Paul undercuts that when he says in verse 12, it's not by works. So it's not just the fact that they hadn't done anything good or wrong before they were born. It's not on the basis of works at all, whether present or future. So no, no worthiness on the basis of good works, either having already been done or in the future. And let me add this. Nor is it on the basis of the worthiness of future faith. Nor is it on the basis of the worthiness of future faith. One of the arguments that some propose when dealing with the issue of God's choice and God's election is sometimes it is said that God's choice is based on what he foresees. So God foresees faith in people and his choice is based on that faith that he foresees in people. A couple of problems with that. One is that's a misunderstanding of how foreknowledge is meant in Scripture. We talked about that back in Romans 8, where, where it said that for those whom God has foreknown, that doesn't mean God looks through time and sees what's going to happen. The idea of foreknowledge there is the idea of loving someone in advance. It, it's a very personal, relational knowing. And it comes from the Old Testament. So knowing someone intimately, relationally, in advance, it essentially amounts to a loving, gracious choice in advance. So foreknowing. So it's not the idea of God seeing what's going to happen before time. And he makes his choice based on that. Plus, have you ever, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? You ever heard that statement? What does that mean? It's a very, it's a very true statement. Because God can't think of anything new. 
You ever think about that? God never has a new piece of information come into his mind. Never. And so those who would say something like God looks down through time and he foresees what people will do, it assumes a bad understanding of God's infinite knowledge. It assumes that God can learn something that he didn't already know. As if God watches a movie of the future and learns something about it. That's not how God's knowledge works. God doesn't learn anything. All knowledge, all reality, all being comes from God. Not to him. So he he doesn't learn anything. And the other problem with that is that it would make election not election anymore, right? Because then God's really not choosing anything. And it puts all the conditions on people. So it's, it's a flawed view. And also here in our passage, the reason I point this out in this particular passage, that it's not the worthiness of future faith, is because of something very interesting that Paul says in this passage. In verse 12, he says, It's not by works but by him who calls. This is fascinating if you've been reading Paul through Romans. Because typically in Romans, what is the other side of the coin from works? It's faith. Right? All the way throughout Romans, we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We're saved by faith. We're justified not on the basis of works. We're justified on the basis of faith. But here, he does not contrast works and faith. He contrasts works and God's call. Why? Because here, we're not dealing with justification. We're dealing with election. So justification, our standing with God, is conditioned on faith, isn't it? There is no justification, good standing before God, without faith. By faith, we are justified. That's what Romans teaches us. So, There is a qualification on justification, and that precondition is faith. But what Paul is showing us here is that the, the precondition of election is not faith. It's God. So it's not by works, but it's the sovereign, gracious call of God. So no good works, no future good works, not even future faith that God foresees because that's not the basis on which God chooses. So it's Israel, not Israel. There's an Israel within an Israel. It's God's promise, not who your parents are. It's God's power, not human plans. And it's grace, not worthiness. What then is the basis on which God's election happens then? 
It's on the basis of God's sovereign will. It's according to his eternal electing purpose. He says in verse number 11, Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, so no good works. So that's the negative. This is not why Jacob was chosen over Esau. Here's the not reason. But in that same verse, he also gives us the positive reason why Jacob was chosen over Esau. And here it is. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. So, Paul, what what you're saying is the reason that Jacob was chosen over Esau is not because one was better than the other, not because one had more good works than the other, not because one was born before the other. The reason that Jacob was chosen over Esau is because that's just what God chose to do. Is that what you're telling me, Paul? Yes. That's what Paul is saying. In order that God's eternal purpose which works in accordance with election, with choice, might stand, might be firm, secure. Now, I went through this before. This is probably a couple months ago now. But I want to kind of go back over it again just a little bit to remind us what Paul means here by God's purpose. In Ephesians 1.11, we read, In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That word plan there is the same word purpose here. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second Timothy 1 9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And I, I gave these quick points to summarize what the New Testament teaches about God's purpose. One, it originates with him. It is his own purpose. It's not anybody else's purpose. It originates with him completely. Secondly, his purpose is eternal and unchangeable. So whatever his purpose is, whatever God has purpose to do, it is eternal, it is unchangeable, it was set in effect before the beginning of creation and will never alter. It is eternal and unchangeable. It is predestined and settled. It was known the end from the beginning and it was settled as having been done even though in history it hadn't occurred yet. His purpose, according to Ephesians 1, is all-encompassing. It is universal. Meaning that everything in the universe, all actions, all beings, all events, all molecules and cells, protons and neutrons, electrons, everything in God's universe fits within his all-encompassing purpose. It operates by grace, not merit. His purpose is a gracious one. 
That is the operating principle. That is, it is given as a gift of grace that is unearned and has nothing whatsoever to do with any conditions at all. No worthiness, no merits. It works in concert, in harmony with election. That is God's sovereign choice. And it issues forth in a gracious, effectual calling on people to salvation. Which is why in verse 12 of Romans 9, Paul says it's not by works, but it's by him who calls. The calling of God. So, he says, verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you say, wow, that is, that's really strong language. And it is strong language. And it's quoted from Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 1, Malachi is confronting the Israelites, and he puts into the mouth of the Israelites something that they were thinking and they were feeling, and that is, Where is God? How has God loved us? Malachi says, God loves you. And the response from the Israelites of his day was, how? Show us. How has God loved us? And and Malachi says, going back to the same story that Paul is using here, Genesis 25, Malachi says, here's how God has loved you. Because Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated In other words, God's demonstration of his love for you is demonstrated in his electing choice of you over Esau. And so when it says here, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated, we're talking about in relative terms. In relative terms, this has to do with God favoring one and choosing one above another. And it has to do with God's sovereign choice. And that is the proof for Malachi to the Israelites that God loves them. That he chose them. And that they are his people. So how should we as Christians respond to this truth? That that the reason why some are the Israel within the Israel. The reason why there are some who are believing Israelites and there are some who are not believing Israelites. And we can even expand this bigger and say to the Gentile world as well, that why there are some who believe and some who don't believe Paul's answer is very clear that it's grace, not worthiness. And it's all based on the electing purpose of God. So what does that mean then? It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I believe. It doesn't matter if I have any responsibility for my own actions. That's not what Paul says anywhere here, is it? Sometimes in our minds, when we start thinking about divine sovereignty, we import a view of fatalism that the scriptures never teach with regard to divine sovereignty. So when we start thinking about predestination, when we start thinking about election, when we start thinking about a future that is secured, when we start thinking about a purpose of God that is unchangeable, unalterable, then we start thinking about fatalism. But the problem with fatalism is that in fatalism, you end up at the end, the intended result, 
regardless of what happens between points A and B. In fatalism, the idea is it doesn't matter what you do, there's nothing that you can do to alter this path, and none of these things will have any influence whatsoever on the final outcome. But that's not the biblical view of the sovereignty of God. The biblical view of the sovereignty of God is not fatalism, that there's an end result and it doesn't matter what happens in between. The biblical view of divine sovereignty is, yes, there's an intended result that will happen, but every single action and step along the way is also a part of that plan. And so God determines in election, in loving choice, in grace, I am going to save Paul, Saul of Tarsus. I'm going to save him. And so what does God do? God uses people. He uses means. He uses actions. In Paul's case, very remarkable, he uses an appearance in the middle of the day, brighter than the noonday sun that drops Paul to his knees. That's Paul's story, but God uses different things in different people's stories, doesn't he? For me and my story, God used a family down the road in a small town in Brainerd, Minnesota, who came and knocked on my parents' door and said, we'd like to invite you to church and we'd like to tell you how to become a Christian. And my parents became Christians. And I grew up in church and I heard the gospel. And at a point in time in my life, God opened my eyes and I believed the gospel because of Sunday school teachers, because of my parents, because of a couple down the road that witnessed to my family. Do any of those things matter? Absolutely. Every single one of those events, every single one of those people matter. And it was all a part of God's divine plan to bring me to salvation in Christ. And you all have stories probably that you could tell just like that, where if you were to line up the dominoes, all the things that fell into place and one knocking over the other for this final, final thing to happen. Y'all can fill in the dominoes all along the way, can't you? Of all the events, all the people, all the things that God used to put you where you are today. So God's sovereignty is secure. It is sure. It will not fail. But it also works dynamically in and through our lives to where everything that we do matters. Every choice that we make matters. And God will hold us accountable for every choice that we make. So when understanding divine sovereignty, don't, don't come to a point where you, you try to adopt a form of fatalism where it doesn't matter what we do because the Bible never teaches anything even close to that. The Bible teaches that we need to share the gospel, that we need to uh, invite people to church and to, to proclaim the name of Christ. The Bible says that we need to do good works so that others may see them and glorify our Father in heaven. The Bible says that we need to be salt and light. All of those things matter in a part of his plan. But when it comes down to our salvation and what makes us a child of God or not a child of God, it has nothing at all whatsoever to do with us. None. 
It's not even like those hand soaps where it says 99.99% of germs are killed by this hand soap. But there's still that 0.01 chance, right, that you might get a germ and get sick from it. It's not even that much of a percentage that we contribute to our salvation. It's not like God does 99.99% and we contribute 0.01%. No, it's all. It is all of grace. And it's all from the loving, gracious hand of God. And that ought to cause us to to understand a couple of things. One, this is why the purpose of God does not fail. Because it was never from the very beginning, it was never God's purpose to save eternally every single physical descendant of Abraham. That was never his purpose. And he illustrates that from these examples that he gives. Rather, it was his purpose from the very beginning to save an Israel within an Israel. That was always his purpose. And for that purpose, that purpose will not fail. And that word will not fail. And God's plans will succeed. And so the unbelief of many Israelites, that does not derail the plan and purpose of God at all. In fact, as we move forward, he's going to show that there is still a plan that God has for these Israelites to come to faith in Christ. But what's happening now doesn't thwart God's plans and purposes at all. The other thing that, that this should teach us is that we should come away with from this passage with an incredible gratitude, with an incredible realization that that. If not for the grace of God, picking me up out of the pit, breathing life into me, resurrecting me from the dead, if not for that grace of God, I would be lost. And that should cause tremendous gratitude and praise to arise in our hearts. And I hope it will also motivate us to go and share this glorious message with those in our world. Will you bow in prayer with me? Our Father God, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God who calls, a God who accomplishes in us what we could never hope to accomplish for ourselves. We were lost and dead in trespasses and sins. And you, God, found us and made us alive in Christ. Not because of anything that we had done, but all because of your grace. All as a gift from your loving hand. So, Lord, now, for those of us who believe, accomplish your good purposes in our lives. May we do the good works that you have foreordained for us to do. May we witness to our neighbors May we give charitably to others. May we show compassion to those around us. May we counsel those who are in need. May we be a, a loving example to our families and our friends and coworkers. God, use us as your instruments of grace in your world to accomplish your plan. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.